0: This is Steve Kim. Wesley Huff. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions raised with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey guys, we're back. Uh, It's Wes and me today. Again, this doesn't happen often and every time it happens, it's such a treat. So thank you for joining me, Wes. Uh, Welcome back here. You betcha. Now, I understand you've been losing some sleep lately. Tell our listeners a little more about that. Well, it depends
1: in which category you're referring to. Um, (laughs) My daughter is now two months old uh, and I've been doing some exam work with my doctorate. So there's, there's been lots on the agenda. So sleep is at a premium.
0: Right. I remember when I was doing my master's through Biola University, um, it was right around the time our two kids were born. So uh, my daughter was born just as I was getting started. And then my son was born just as I was kind of wrapping things up. And so doing school and having a young new life in your household i remember it being really challenging so guys if you guys are listening to this please keep wes and his wife and their kids in prayer they need lots of sleep Um, now speaking of little ones we find ourselves in the advent season and christmas is fast approaching so i thought it would be good to sit down with you wesley and talk a little bit about the nativity story Well, actually, nativity stories, I should say. One found in the Gospel of Matthew and the other found in the Gospel of Luke. And I want us to examine some issues that are of apologetic interest. So, for our listeners, this would be a good place to pause the recording if you can, uh, if you can safely do so, and actually read through the two Uh, nativity accounts in both Matthew and Luke because we're going to make a lot of references to these two accounts. And so again, if you can safely do so, pause this recording now and read through those two accounts before you proceed. So Wesley, let's get right to it. Now, the nativity account in Matthew and Luke, they're different. And one of the first things you notice, although in Luke, this doesn't come until after, really, the nativity account, but the genealogy, right? Uh, a lot of people have noticed that, okay, it starts with Jesus and then Joseph, and then the father's names are different, and then it, Matthew goes all the way to Abraham, Luke goes all the way to Adam. So, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, it's one of those topics that if people refer to Bible contradictions, they comes up pretty frequently just because there is that disparity. And I think realistically, if it was that big of a deal, the early church would have, I don't know, tried to smooth it over to some degree because there were other issues within the scriptures that the early church struggled with as uh, they found embarrassing. But interestingly enough, the different genealogies aren't a huge issue in the early church. Now, To back up a little bit, we do have some uh, introductory stuff in the sense that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So we see that in places like 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23. And both Matthew and Luke provide genealogies of Jesus that confirm that he was a descendant of David. And so that legitimizes the Messiah making a claim As a true heir to the throne of Israel. Jesus fits that bill. And each genealogy also brings out themes that are important that each particular gospel writer emphasizes. So Matthew's genealogy goes from Jesus to Abraham, Abraham being the father of the Jewish nation. And by doing this, Matthew emphasizes the Jewishness of of Jesus. And that you see throughout Matthew's gospel. He's really emphasizing that Jesus is, he's the succession of Abraham. He's the succession of Moses. He's the succession of David. We see that. Now, Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. So talk about starting from the beginning. Um I have a friend who says, start from the beginning and don't leave anything out. And that's what Luke is doing. And he's focusing on the universality of the gospel message. So it's a message for both Jews and Gentiles everywhere.
0: So you have in Matthew, you have a Jewish author, really Levi, right? So Levi is writing to his people. And then Luke, the physician, he's a Gentile and he's writing to Gentile audience so, is that sort of what they have in mind? Like, Matthew wants to speak to his own people and show them, hey, this is this Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah who is to come from the line of David. And then, on the other hand, here's Luke. You know, he's writing to Theophilus and Gentile audience at large. I think so. Yeah. Without ascribing too much intention to the
1: authors that they don't specifically tell us, Mm. I think looking at the overall picture of how these gospels play out, I think that's totally reasonable uh, to assume that you have these two individuals. uh, They clearly have different intentions in mind in terms of the stories that they share and the way that they capitalize on certain aspects of Jesus's life. Um. While the two genealogies from Matthew and Luke are basically the same from Abraham to David, from David to Jesus, that's where the differences come. So Matthew follows the line of David's son Solomon, while Luke seems to follow Nathan, who's another son of David. So how do we account for the two different genealogies and the differences we see in the text? Well, there are a number of theories that have been proposed. And just briefly, one of the ones you hear most often If you say pull up this on Google and, and find an apologetics website or maybe, uh, in some commentary you have on the gospels, it'll almost always give the two parents option. So one of the simplest explanations is that the two genealogies are representational of the two earthly parents of Jesus. So you have Mary and you have Joseph. And in this case, Luke would be giving us Mary's genealogy and Matthew would be giving us Joseph's. So, practically i think this makes sense since luke's birth narrative focuses on mary and tells the story of of her perspective right and matthew on the other hand he gives us the angel's message to joseph and many of his understandings and responses so through both mary and joseph's line jesus was a descendant of david and therefore eligible to be the messiah as i said before although it is true that matrilineage, so tracing the ethnic roots through the mother, is a common practice in modern Judaism. Traditionally, you don't find that as much going, say, back to Jesus' time within the first century. So within ancient Judaism, it was the father who was seen as the carrier of the family. So if you think of the descendants, uh, uh, the patriarchs, it's tracing one's genealogy through the father's family. So one's genealogy through the mother— would have been seen as a little bit unusual. It it wouldn't have been ruled out completely. And not that is that the circumstances around Jesus's birth were free of unusual occurrences to begin with. But I think that the two parents genealogy option does make sense, at least at face value. There are a couple of other options though. One that has been proposed is what's referred to as the legal versus physical portrayals. So, Another reason that we that has been hypothesized as um sorry is that Matthew presents a, a royal or legal genealogy. So in this explanation, Matthew is said to be presenting an official line of Davidic kings, so not necessarily his actual descendants. And, and the point by the author being to show the reader that Jesus is in the line of the Davidic kings and the Joseph has a claim to being connected to this line. Whereas Luke on the other hand within the theor- within this theory specifically would be giving us an actual physical descendancy. So there is definitely something to say to the fact that Matthew is making a theological argument with his list of descendants. Matthew's list is curated and this isn't something that I think you'd you'd pick up at face value, but if you cross-reference Matthew's lists with the genealogies, with the books of Genesis, Chronicles, and Kings, you actually find out that Matthew shrinks the list a little bit. And he kind of, he amalgamates some of the names. So Matthew duplicates and even leaves out certain individuals. Between Solomon and Boaz, there's a 300-year gap. Between uh Jehoram and Uzziah, he, he leaves out three names, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. And then between Amon and Josiah, he leaves out Jehoiakim. So if you haven't fallen asleep uh, with that explanation already, um, <laughs> what Matthew seems to be doing uh, to this sort of puzzling choice lies in the fact that if we count the names, we get three perfect sets of 14. So what that does is it, it totals 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. So th- this is not a mistake or uh, Matthew's not purposefully trying to mislead people. What it seems to be is that he's trying to use numbers to present a symbolic message to the reader that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the listener might be thinking, well, how does that do that? <laughs> in ancient Judaism, there was a concept called uh, gematria. And in gematria, you would take letters the Hebrew letters specifically, and they would hold numerical value. And this was used to present certain ideas or concepts. And if you take the numerical value of David, DVD in Hebrew, because there's no vowels in ancient Hebrew, you get four plus six plus four, which equals 14. So Jesus's genealogy is divided into three sets of 14 generations, with Jesus being the, the last individual on that list to make the 14th. And the argument has been made that this reflects the importance of the numerical value of David's name and therefore reinforces Jesus's claim as the son of David, which is how Matthew starts his gospel, uh, Matthew one, one. So that's a little bit more of a technical argument, but it is an interesting one because it, it fits with some of the, uh, the num- numerical and numerology that we see going on with other literature outside of the Bible. And Matthew's original audience, although it might not compute today, um, no pun intended with the math, uh, <laughs> it would have with the original audience, especially those who are well-versed in the Jewish literature of the day. So we have two genealogies, Mary and Joseph, and then we have also the legal versus physical portrayals. And then there's also the, one of the, the final options that you'll see floating around there is that uh, what's referred to as the two fathers theory. And this is uh, one that the early church father, Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, used to explain the discrepancy between the two genealogies as saying that Matthew is tracing the biological lineage and Luke is taking into account an occurrence known as the Leverite marriage law.
0: Right. So that is where if an older brother passes without leaving a child, the younger brother takes that mantle and marries... His sister in law to give her children.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Leverite marriage was a Jewish tradition uh, that stated that if a man died without bearing sons, his brother would marry the widow and have sons who would carry on the dead brother's family name. And we, we see this in the, the Jewish law, uh, the Mosaic law. And Eusebius, he saw Malachi uh, mentioned in Luke 2 24. And uh, Matin, uh, mentioned in Matthew one fifteen as married at different times to the same woman, without once again putting the audience to sleep. Uh, what it would mean is that Heli, who's mentioned in Luke 3.23, and Jacob, which is mentioned in, in Matthew one fifteen, were half-brothers. So if Heli died without a son, and his half-brother Jacob married Heli's widow, this son would be Joseph. And this would mean Joseph was the son of Heli, legally the son of Jacob, biologically. What that hypothesis solves was the problem of the variances in the lineage by saying that Matthew and Luke were both recording a Joseph's family line, but Luke follows the legal lineage while Matthew follows the biological one.
0: So I think what I'm getting, just by way of bigger picture, is that even though a lot of skeptics are very quick to say this is a contradiction, there are, are obviously lots of different ways of explaining this. So it, it seems to me it's far from being this sort of, this really easy contradiction that you can just throw out there. There are lots of different explanations, which you have to go through and invalidate each one of them before you can say, yeah, it, this looks like a contradiction.
1: Yeah, and I think when we do history, we, we do this kind of stuff. It's not crazy to to try to harmonize Differences within different historical accounts. Uh, so we could just jump to the most skeptical option and say, "Well, these differences obviously are contradictions, which obviously means there's either lying or funny business going on here." But I think any of the three options that I just presented are are easy, good faith options that that make sense, especially within the original context.
2: Right. Before we continue, a message from Andy. As you probably know by now, we have a Double Your Impact campaign currently going on in which all donations are doubled up to $100,000. Currently, we're 72% of the way to our goal. You have until December 31st to participate. In the new year, we have the Thinking Series online course taking place for fun, certificate, and for college credit. This semester, we have added a mentorship component with Steve Kim and myself. You can register today at ApologizeCanada.com Lastly, on behalf of Apologize Canada, I want to wish you and your family a hopeful Christmas. I think you would all agree that at times this last year, it has not been very merry. We've all been impacted and know someone who has been devastated by these trying circumstances. Truthfully, I'm not sure how a Christmas spent in isolation from friends and family sounds very merry, but we do have hope in Christ, no matter our circumstances. This Christmas, I pray that as we reflect on the desperate times that Jesus was born into, that we are reminded of the hope this child brought 2,000 years ago and still brings today. My prayer for you is from the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, found in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, back to our show with Steve and Wesley. Speaking of differences,
0: one other thing that uh, many people bring up is where the Holy Family, so Joseph and Mary and Jesus, where they are from and where they live. And so, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's pretty clear. Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth. They travel to Bethlehem to be registered for the census, which we'll talk about later. And then they have Jesus in Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem to have him circumcised on the eighth day. And then they go back to Nazareth. Whereas in Matthew... It's not entirely clear where they they start from Nazareth or Bethlehem. But anyway, they have Jesus in Bethlehem. And then they escape King Herod to Egypt. But then after King Herod dies, they come back to Judea. It looks like they're on their way to Bethlehem, but they reroute to Nazareth. And especially in Matthew 2, verse 23, I'm reading from ESV here. It says, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. It almost sounds like it's their first time there. I don't think that is the only reading there, but I've seen some people kind of read it that way. It sounds like they've never even been there before. So what's your take on this?
1: Yeah, well, I think Matthew begins with the genealogy to show Jesus's heritage and then tells us of the miraculous conception and birth without any reference to the journey to Bethlehem, which you mentioned. Matthew also makes no reference to the stable or the manger or the shepherds or the donkeys. He simply says that the Magi came to the house after their faithful visit to Herod in Jerusalem. What we see in Luke is that, as I said before, he has a genealogy. And instead of focusing heavily on John the Baptist as a foil to Jesus, the author goes to considerable length to explain the background and circumstances around John's birth before coming to Jesus. So Mary is much more of a central uh, figure with her visit to Elizabeth and her the Magnificat, the, the song that she sings after the angel gives her the, the message in um, I that's chapter 1, uh, verse 46 to 55. And, and there is a, there's a heavy focus on the naming of John before we're told of Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph start in Nazareth and have to travel to Bethlehem where Jesus is born and placed in the manger. Here, there is no mention of Magi. And instead, Luke has nearby shepherds coming to visit the young family. There's also no mention of having to flee to Herod, the, the flee of Herod's regime in Jerusalem. Uh, Luke actually says Mary and Joseph went to Jerusalem to have an eight-day-old Christ circumcised, right? According to the Jewish custom. And that's where they met Simeon, who, who blessed them after, you know, saying the famous lines, the sovereign Lord, as you have promised, uh, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. So far from the Christmas story being straightforward, we actually have two accounts that seem to be strikingly different. You have the classical Nativity story. It seems to be an amalgamation. You know, the one that we see presented, uh, in, in church with kids dressed up as, as Mary Joseph and, and lambs. Um, we tend to merge the Christmas stories to make them fit together. This is not new or particularly uh, revelatory. This has been done for a long time, you know, going back to the early Middle Ages. This sort of nativity scenes in a play have been harmonized in that way. So not necessarily because either accounts disprove the other, but rather because by merging the two, what we actually might be doing is missing some of the original author's intention, what they were trying to get at. So Matthew's emphasis on Jesus's ancestry, as I kind of said before, reflects his desire to show Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. And he highlights Jesus as the new David with his birthplace in Bethlehem, which is is a continuation of of what I said happening that we can pick out from the, the genealogy. Joseph hears from the angel through the Old Testament prophecies that are shown to be fulfilled in Jesus. And the whole account is littered with Old Testament references. So this, you know, again, highlights Jesus's Jewish roots. Then the Magi's role shows the importance of Jesus and his prominence as the King of the Jews. So by contrast, Luke's main focus is on showing how Jesus is different from John the Baptist. So the author goes to great pains to explain John's identity as the one to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And, a uh, Prophet of the Most High, you know, setting up that. Uh, he is coming in the spirit of Elijah. This is contrasted to Jesus, who will be great and will be called a son of the Most High. And the shepherds are told that a Savior has been born to you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. If the readers were still in any doubt of Jesus's identity, Luke then finishes the nativity account with the visit of Simeon, who describes Jesus as God's salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of the nations. Um, so I think although we blur the the two accounts, once again, we see different emphases of what's happening. And I think it's clear that the Magi story happens later. Jesus is a little bit older. Uh, he's grown up a little bit. It's not that you have contradictory stories. They're actually set at different points in time. But they're still focusing on who Jesus is, his character, even from the beginning of his story. He's the king of kings. He's the son of the Most High. He's, as Simeon says, God's salvation. So, once again, uh, less contradiction and more a differentiation in details.
0: I I guess this goes to show just how much we have this tendency to read our own Biases into the text because when we think of writing history or historiography, we do it in a very different way. We want everything chronologically ordered. When you quote something, it has to be verbatim. But it seems that these ancient authors they had the freedom, by convention, to reorganize things thematically and not necessarily chronologically, and those kinds of things. Would would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that there there are intentions that the gospel authors are trying to focus on. And I think by better understanding the intentions, uh, how the original author is trying to communicate something to the original audience, without trying to, um, the word is anachronism to try to like take a standard that we have now and apply it on someone in the past, without anachronistically reading how we understand history onto how they understand history, and uh, how they're trying to portray this. And uh, with the caveat that they are trying to write history, these things actually happened, they're not fudging the details, they just have different intentions in mind, which is the whole reason we have four Gospels. Now, we don't have one Gospel, we have four, all telling the same story, but capitalizing on different aspects. And also, as a side note, uh, Steve, I mentioned, what's sometimes called the criterion of embarrassment, you know, that the genealogies in the early church don't seem to be that really contentious point, being that embarrassing. There is an aspect of the Christmas story that is embarrassing to the early Christian reader in the sense that its shepherds are the ones who are the audience for who this king is. And although many important and famous people throughout the Bible were shepherds. So you think of like, I mean, David himself was a shepherd, right? Um, herdsmen and farmers didn't have a very high status within ancient Israelite society and, and shepherds, they were isolated. Uh, they lived very, um, secluded and isolated uh, lives out in the fields, spending the majority of their, their lives away from families. And they were nomadic in the sense that they led their flocks and herds from one patch of grassland to the next. And in both the Old and New Testament, shepherds had a very hard time both adhering to ritual purity due to their constant proximity to animals, as well as keeping the Sabbath because sheep needed constant supervision and protection. So it's a little bit unusual to have, if you say we are making this story up, to have arguably some of the lowest classes of individuals being some of the first people to be present at the birth of the king of kings.
0: All right. Now then, the, the final apologetic issue that I want to look at is the census in Luke 2. So, it starts off like this. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, there, there is some discussion around whether this is accurate because historical records show Quirinius was not governor in this region yet. And, you know, what about the census that requires people to travel to their own town? Did this sort of thing happen? You know, they, this seems a little unusual. And so there's that kind of pushback. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is
1: a harder one to try to reconcile, although there are very reasonable solutions to it. So the fact is that until recently, it had been widely held by critics that Luke made an error in his assertion about registration under Caesar Augustus. And the the census actually took place in 6 or 7 AD, because we do have records of a census taking place. They're just not at the time that Luke seems to be placing them. Uh, However, recently, scholarship has revisited this particular topic, and it's now widely admitted that there was, in fact, uh, an earlier registration, or at least there, there could have possibly been an earlier registration, which is what Luke seems to be alluding to. There's also a, a grammatical issue there. Can you just read that passage out again um for us Steve?
0: Yeah, so Luke 2 1 to 3 says in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town.
1: Yeah. So that, that phrase right there, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, there is a possible alternative translation because the word that's used in Greek, prote, which is translated first here. Yes. It could mean before. So it could, and this isn't the smoothest translation option, but it is a, an option within sort of the syntactical range that we have, it could be not that first took place when Cornius was governor of Syria, but it could be before this took place when Cornelius was governor of Syria. So part of the um, a potential of, of harmonizing, of smoothing out what's going on there is that Luke is using not necessarily uh, prote. In the way that it's usually translated, protos literally meaning first, but as the the secondary option, protos meaning before, that is an option. I've heard some try to defend that. Uh, I think it's possible, but grammatically, it's not the easiest one. Um, Yeah, so I mean, there was a census project, uh, which probably took uh, several years to complete. And so we know that censuses that were done in the ancient world took a long time. So so we have uh, such a census for the purpose of taxation. We have record of happening in Gaul between 10 and 9 BC, and that took place over a period of 40 years. So what we could be seeing is us in our, our modern context being a little bit too narrow in how we are sort of mapping out when this happens. And it's likely that the decree to begin the census in about eight or seven BC may not have actually begun in Palestine until sometime later. So the problems of organization and preparation may have delayed the actual census until five BC or later, sort of in this window where we think Jesus, when we think Jesus was born. So that's an also, also, uh, an option. Um, Also, it's not an unusual requirement that people return to the place of their origin or or the place that they own property in the ancient world for this kind of event. Um, So we have other recordings uh, of this happening within the ancient world that requires people to go back to their sort of home destination. And, And particularly in Israel, this was a little bit easier to do because the tribes were associated with certain... Villages, um, the tribes of Israel. So, all that to say, this is one of the harder differences to try to find a solution to. But it's not like there are no solutions. It's not like history says one thing and the Bible says something completely different. Whether it's the the grammar issue, uh, whether it's the fact that uh, sentences censuses easy for me to say, took place over a number of years, um, and we have records of those within the ancient world, or something else. There are valid options that all reconcile this particular event with what we see in the annals of history.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that has been super helpful, Wes, and I hope for our listeners, if you have been sort of wrestling over some of these things in the nativity account and the differences and things like that and as you're celebrating Christmas this season I hope this puts your mind a little bit more at ease knowing that you know these are not irreconcilable just straight up contradictions as we think of it but that Matthew and Luke they had their reasons for for writing and that we don't have complete and full knowledge of things that were going on at that time, such that we can look at what Luke is saying about the census, for example, and say, aha, contradiction, that sort of thing. There are lots of different options of reconciling these things. And so I hope that gives you some measure of peace as you celebrate Christmas this year. Well, we'll wrap up here. I hope this was helpful to you. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about.